I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hi, friends. Welcome to Once Upon a Gene. Thanks for hanging out with me a little bit today. I know you're still thinking, hmm, could I make it happen? Should I go to the Global Genes Conference? The answer is yes, yes. Head over to globalgenes.org and register and check out the agenda. Also, there's a lot of new content on the Disorder Channel, which is a place you can watch rare disease films and shows. It's amazing. You can download the Disorder Channel on a Roku or an Amazon Fire, so go check it out. My guest today is loved by many. Anytime his name comes up, people say what a great guy, what a great colleague, and what an amazing daddy is. He and his wife have two kids who both have the same form of muscular dystrophy, FSHD for short. He's 100% invested in making an impact for rare disease. He's an author and now VP of Medical and Scientific Strategy and head of the Rare Disease Consortium at Cineos Health. He has an amazing story of his professional life and his personal life coming together. And his kids are just so amazing. And I know he's so proud of all the things that they've accomplished. I'll link his books and his uh, recent news story that kind of talks a little bit about getting one of their kids off to college. So please enjoy my conversation with Ray Hummel. Hi, Raymond. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Effie. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yes, it's my pleasure. Our mutual friend, Jason Colquitt, sent me your info. And if you're a friend of his, you're a friend of mine. So I'm really honored to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much. He, it, it, it's indeed an honor to have him as a friend. <laughs> yes. Well, Ray, like it's hard to even like introduce someone like you. You have so many hats that you're wearing and it's just really impressive. And I hate that you're here, but I'm also so glad that parents like you are exactly where you're at in our industry world. So I'd love for you to kind of introduce yourself, tell everyone about it, tell everyone what you're doing. You are the head of the Rare Disease Consortium at Cineos Health. You're VP of Medical and Scientific Strategy. You're a rare dad. You are a scientist and you're an author. What else are you, Ray? Well, I try to be an encourager and uh, I try to be an explainer and I try to be a connector. So what, what I mean by those things is that early in my career, I'm actually a veterinarian by training, but I've gotten into the pharmaceutical industry and I've been there for over 30 years. My wife introduced me to the first contract research organization, which was called Quintiles Transnational Corporation. That was before I even had children. And then after my daughter was diagnosed with a rare disease, 
I found myself playing larger and larger roles to not only understand that disease, but how I could share that information that I learned to help other people. And um, that's evolved. And now my um, personal life is kind of blurred with my professional life because becoming a caregiver, but also being a pharmaceutical executive for the last 30 years has allowed me a lot of opportunities that some people and some parents might not have. So um, I've tried to put a lot of the education and the learnings that I've had. And I work a lot with my kids, too, to publish things. Um, to try to get the word out about rare diseases and to try to demystify some things for people so that we can get um, drugs and treatments to kids and uh, folks with rare diseases faster. Yes. I read something kind of funny that when you were studying to be a veterinarian, you realized that you were allergic to cats. So we can thank your allergies for putting you in this place. <laughs> you know, I love cats. I actually, my, my <laughs> wife had a cat when we were first dating and um, I absolutely love them and I would have them. But yeah, um, when I was in private practice, I didn't realize that when you were dealing with many, many cats in a week, um, even allergies, and then I started getting shots and some other treatments to try to stop the allergies, it became very difficult. And that was part of the reasons why I left private practice. But yeah, anyway, um, I still have a love of animals and I still keep on my license because it's been a love throughout my whole life is um, I care very much for animals. I used to work before that as a wildlife biologist, believe it or not. Very cool. It sounds like you've lived lots of lives, right? Well, my mom gave me a book called Jonathan Livingston Seagull. It was a famous book that came out around 1974. So just kind of date me here a little but um, it basically said that the seagulls don't only have to flock with all the seagulls and fight for the, the bread, you know, but they can also um, become like eagles if they want to be. So she, she made it very important to me that to not color within the lines and to do things that you feel are right and maybe and not just um, what society may think is the most important thing. Mm, I love that. Thank you. Can you tell us about Meredith and John and when you discovered your kiddos had a rare disease and maybe talk a little bit about that disease? Yeah, sure. So that's what got me to probably behind this podcast right now today, because when my daughter was diagnosed, I think it was around 2003 with um, fascio-scapulohumeral muscular dystrophy, which I had never heard of the term, much less be able to pronounce it. I was told that it was very mild. It didn't progress. Uh, there was a very low chance she would ever end up in a wheelchair and there really wasn't much they could do about it when she finally got diagnosed. And, it, and the diagnostic odyssey was a couple of years. We, we had known some signs were going on, but things like she had been to a speech pathologist and some other things. But we didn't realize she had FSHD until um, one of her loves of her life. And I've seen this with other people with FSHD and even other types of different muscular dystrophy is she loved to dance. And she couldn't, um, there was a point where she could keep up or exceed her peers. And then there was a point where she had a hard time keeping up with her peers. And then there was a point where she couldn't keep up with her peers. And then she had to get out of dance. And the heartbreak of that was really difficult for her. And it was difficult for her, her mother and I. So um, we made it a quest to try to learn everything we could about the disease. And the FSHD Society, which is the patient advocacy group for that, has been fantastic. And um, I became friends with the founder and his mother. Uh, the mother since passed away, but I'm still friends with the founder. And he moved out of the chief executive role and handed it on to another gentleman who's grown it by a couple of different factors of what it had been. So we're blessed that we have a really good patient advocacy group for the disease state that my kids have. My son was diagnosed um, years later. And in retrospect, I think my, his mother and probably me more than her was a little bit in denial because genetically we were told that he would have a 50-50 chance. So I figured since my daughter had had it that probably my son hopefully would not have it. And he liked to play baseball and he had some problems keeping up with his peers too in that. And then eventually um, he had to drop out of baseball and drop out of sports. 
so it's been an odyssey now of what what can we do to help other people with FSHD? And it's expanded to what can I do now, uh, both professionally, to how can I help all people with rare diseases from some of the lessons I've learned while dealing with the patient advocacy groups, dealing with insurance and reimbursement, and doing things that might help people from a more practical standpoint, including one of the things that I believe is stigmatized in, in this space, and that's mental health. So much to unpack there. First, that is just so heartbreaking, you know, that the kids were also old enough and aware enough and had lived this life where they had hobbies and passions and athleticism and to have that kind of just stolen from them and to be in their shoes, perhaps as a patient, and then to also see that as a parent, the mental health aspect that you spoke of is ongoing, right? It's something that you're dealing with all the time. And I wonder, as a family who was plagued with this rare disease, how did you navigate this? This experience for you is so unique with two kids having the rare disease and then the parents and also kind of having this insight into your industry. How have you kind of laid that foundation for this? Well, as we got to meet more and more people with FSHD, we found that uh, for most of the people that I've met, just about everyone, it usually runs in their families. So the fact that we were diagnosed with a de novo mutation, meaning it didn't run in my wife's family and it didn't run in my family, it was a bit of a stunner. So I will say that I was flabbergasted with the first diagnosis and you know crushed but not defeated with the second diagnosis. So I was reading this person to try to um, encourage myself about, it was kind of an uplifting treatise on how you can um, plant your tears. And basically what he said is that you take what you have that is not good and then you turn it into something good. And that's kind of the way we've decided to take it as a family. So we reach out to the professionals we need to um, when we need to get help, whether it be mental health or physical health or occupational health. Because as my dad used to say, you know, we're all composed of body, mind, and spirit, and they're all interwoven and not not one needs to be addressed. They all need to be addressed. Because I was on a call earlier this morning with some colleagues and um, I started an employee resource group. And we said, we all agreed there that um, there's no health without mental health. So I think it starts with that. And um, one of the things that encourages us all is to uh, write articles and to write lots of things and thought leadership pieces. So we do that. And that's a bit of a coping mechanism. And um, uh, for example, I just recently wrote a book on rare disease drug development with about 40 different other folks that helped me. And the net net of that was, to be honest with you, was a bit therapeutic for myself and and probably my, my kids and my wife as well, because we feel like at least if we're going to dealt with a rare disease like this, then we're going to share what we can with others to try to help them so they don't have to go through it for the same amount of time or as severely as we had to. Tell me a little bit about your book. I know that Meredith and John both contributed to that, especially from the patient perspective. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. So I have had an opportunity of working on a couple of books before that. So this wasn't my first one, but I reached out to Springer, who I had written a book on muscular dystrophy about a few years before that. And I told him my plan, but if you've ever read a Springer book, a lot of them are mostly just text. They don't have a lot of pictures. They may have graphs or charts for scientific things, but it's it's a scientific book. So, you know, that's what you'd expect. But I wanted to do this book different. So I reached out to one of my colleagues at the time. She doesn't look work for the company anymore, but she's a, still a dear friend of mine, Dr. Marina Kolakavina. And she's also an artist. So she's not only a PharmD and knows a lot about the commercialization of rare diseases, now has her own business. She's also an artist. And I wanted to make sure that when we put in the book that we put a face on the numbers. So there are statistics like in rare disease about how many people have it, how many children are affected and all that. But more important than that, I thought was it should be about Bill or Effie or Ray or Jill. It should be about specific people. So we have we both provided caregiver and uh, patient perspectives. And there's 25 chapters that I came up with. And every person I asked to write a chapter for it, without exception, said yes. 
And I take that as a testimony to people who are committed to the rare disease space more than myself, because there's some people in there that are actually pretty famous. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard of um, Pat Furlong, but she lost two boys to Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Now she runs uh, Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy and has one of the largest patient self-reported registries in the world on Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So, you know, I think one of the things that's been stolen from us is some of the physical things. But, you know, we've tried to uh, encourage our kids, too, to do things like my father-in-law. So John's grandfather encouraged him to fly before he was unable to. So he took flying lessons when he was younger and he actually flew from Raleigh-Durham Airport to Kitty Hawk. And uh, one of the most interesting things about that day was not the fact that he just accomplished from it, but in and of itself is, was huge. The other thing I thought was interesting is when he flew in, it looked like Robert Redford had flown in before him because we saw his name in the uh, manifesto where the pilots are asked to sign in. So I just thought that was really cool on a couple of different levels. Oh my gosh, I love that story so much. And I love just all the isms and the positivity and just the action that your family has taken to not only maintain the health of your family unit, but to also make a difference. It's just, it's really special. Well, it's it's a blessing. You know, we've had a lot of people helping us. You know, if you ever go to one of these MDA care clinics, you'll realize that there's a bunch of people there. You know, my kids have a team of caregiver professionals around them that includes people like neurologists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, psychologists, you know, psychiatrists, durable equipment providers, cardiologists, pulmonologists, and the list goes on. Sometimes with our rare disease population, it takes a lot of people to to support these guys. And um, there's a lot of different things going on. So, you know, it takes a village to, to tackle the rare diseases. And I believe that we're going slower than I would like. And everybody else, I think, agrees with that. You know, of seven to 10,000 rare diseases that have been identified, um, they say less than 5% have a cure or disease-modifying treatment. So I think we need to do better. I'm, I'm really excited about cell and gene therapies and some other things in the spaces. But, you know, I think I wish they would come quicker. I mean, for one thing, if I had to have a wish list and I, and I lived in the perfect world, and I know we don't live in that world, but if we did, I would um, provide more incentives to uh, sponsors of rare disease companies to make it easier for them to develop these products. Um, I'm very thankful for the Orphan Drug Act of 1983 and all the things that have pretended even up through the 2000s, but I would like to see more. Mm. I'm curious about that. What do you think the patient advocacy groups in particular or the patient voice, where do you think they fit into helping propel that forward? Well, they are propelling it forward and they are the critical instigators of that change and the positive instigators of that change. I would say that patient advocacy groups are the one group that interfaces between the patient and the pharmaceutical companies. You know, I, th I think that they look out for the best interest of the patient. So by keeping that in mind, they sometimes have to dance a particular walk because they don't have a lot of money. Uh, most of them are involved in fundraising. And COVID has been very hard on the patient advocacy groups as a whole. As I've seen over the last couple of years, it's difficult to get a patient advocacy group sometimes on the first ring because a lot of these folks are doing this in addition to their day job. Many are parents or families, especially with the smaller ones. And some of the ones who don't have a lot of money or haven't been able to raise funds in the last couple of years are hurting well and have had to furlough some of their people. So I think we need to support the patient advocacy groups as much as we possibly can because they're one of the biggest um, interfaces between them and a cure. I also think they have a responsibility to to show people all the different treatments that rare diseases can have, including clinical trials. And, and while I don't think every person should be in a clinical trial, just because I work for a contract research organization, I do think that a clinical trial option, if it's available, should be available to everyone as a potential treatment option for them or for their family. And that is why I think we need to make sure that we educate physicians and we educate all the people that take care of our kids that clinical trials could be an option for them if the risk benefit is seen to be in their benefit. Yeah. 
You know, I know that your patient advocacy group was set up before your kids were diagnosed and you found them, thank goodness. And, you know, I'm sure they had laid quite a foundation, but then you discovered that there really wasn't a ton actually known about the rare disease that your kiddos had. So you wrote the book on it and not just about your kids, but you talked about all muscular dystrophies and kind of laid that out for them. How do you think that book has helped your patient advocacy group and also the other muscular dystrophy groups together? Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I wrote a, um, a paper a couple of years ago on accelerating rare disease drug development, lessons learned from patient advocacy groups in the neuromuscular space. And I think the neuromuscular patient advocacy groups are actually leaders in the entire rare disease space. Now, oncology is like a whole different world. So I, and they're stellar, but the world that I know the best is the neuromuscular world. And I know that those have been some of the biggest change agents. Let me just give you an example. So the lady who I'd mentioned before, Pat Furlong, who now runs Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, who lost two kids to Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy, she not only wrote the chapter for our book on the caregiver perspective, but she also helped to promulgate the first FDA guidance for Duchenne muscular dystrophy in the United States, and that was back in 2014. And I would have bet money that other patient advocacy groups would have followed that route and helped the FDA to develop guidance because that was welcomed by the FDA. And yet, as far as I know, there's been no other guidance that has come out by any other patient advocacy group from since then. Another thing I would say is that it used to go that the patient voice was kind of a nice to have years ago, and I'm talking like 10 or 15 years ago. Now it's becoming a must have. It's not just makes good sense from a business perspective, meaning that if you can enroll patients faster or you can decrease the burden of a patient to make them want to enroll into a clinical trial so you can get the product or the test product or the candidate therapy to market quicker, but it's also ethically the right thing to do, right? We're in one of the few industries where we don't always consult with the end user and that's starting to change. There's been promulgation and FDA draft guidance just came out in the last year. And I highlighted that in one of our recent white papers that we came out from Cineos Health. It's labeled something like um, the patient voice, how to accelerate rare disease drug development and basically that we listen to the patients when we have these protocols and find out what the inclusion exclusion criteria and the schedule of assessments are. Because sometimes, you know, people may not want to do five or six biopsies. They may only want to do two biopsies if you're in the neuromuscular space, for example. And these things need to be considered when you're running a clinical trial, because when the company wonders why the, the clinical trial is not enrolling well, or it's not enrolling fast, or it's not enrolling as well as expected, it all comes down to um, the patient perspective. So I think the patients are going to be playing a larger and larger role, and they are starting to play a larger and larger role. So I think that's edifying. And I think that also feels like people can be empowered because now that they have more options about over the potential treatments or the way a potential treatments developed, I think it's good for both industry and also good for the patients and patient advocacy groups. Yeah, absolutely. And it just makes me think of your book again and the portraits of seeing them as a person and not a patient and not a number and empowering them, right? Like you just said. I've talked to several parents whose kids have been in clinical trials over the last year or so. And it seems so clunky. Like most of them are grateful, obviously, that they were able to get their kids in into these trials. But it's almost like they're they're a little broken down from them just from like the basic things like, hey, we had to pay for our lunches every day and I'm really broke and I'm traveling. Just like all those little things that you'd think would be so easily put together that really make families weary about doing it again or impossible. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I, you know, there's been a lot of bad things that have come out about this pandemic. 
But I will say one of the silver linings is that there's been an increase towards telemedicine and also towards um, what they call the decentralized clinical trial. And what that means is that like in an ideal world, maybe you wouldn't have to take the patient with all of the caregivers that they require, including maybe their parents or grandparents or whoever's taking care of the patient, but also all their caregiver team, all those people I talked about that like support my kids, for example, um, that you could take a little bit of the clinical trial now to the patient's home. And that's what they call a hybrid clinical trial. So so people that are in clinical trials now for many of the rare diseases, it used to be they would think about maybe as an afterthought, if you could help a person to maybe do one or two things at their home. And now it's completely changed because with COVID, people are trying to think, can we do almost everything at the person's home? And, you know, there, there's some things like a whole body MRI, you can't do it at a person's home. But there are some things like e- EKG reading. You can do that at home. I used to work in ultrasound when I was a technician, an animal technician. I know a lot of people do um, echocardiograms and ultrasonography exams that they can do those in a person's home. They can um, do like halter monitoring where you put an ECG lead on a person and it can monitor them for 24 hours to see if like an arrhythmia or some, you know, something wrong with the cardiac heart that's working not quite right. And you can pick that up at home. Um, People are coming up with things like digital sensors and wearables. Um, You've probably heard about Fitbits and other things that people can detect if they're falling or their, their motion. And a lot of these tools are not valid by the regulators so they, they have to get studied more and more. So people are trying to study them in clinical trials to see if we can find out about the motion in people and see how it declines over time. And if you can change that trajectory from declining, maybe that could be a way to get your drug approved because you can sh- prove that it's actually helping a person do better than what you would expect if they weren't on treatment. Oh my gosh, it's so cool. It is exciting. You're right. There are so many blooms that opened up with the availability of the internet and all of these things taking care of patients. It's very cool. How do you mobilize them? How, especially the nano rare diseases, how do you find patients to actually participate in these trials, let alone trying to convince them? But how do you find them if they're caregivers or they're patients and they're so busy and maybe they don't even have a correct advocacy group that really fits them? How do you find those people? Well, that's part of what I get paid for. So I can share with you something. So there's there's two big buckets that I that I could talk about. So the one I'll talk about is the detective work to find them. But the other thing that's important that a lot of people overlook is that you have to provide a compelling argument for a person to go into clinical trial, right? It's not just about finding them. So like earlier in my career, so several years ago, everybody thought that big data would be the key to everything, right? But the problem in rare diseases is, is um, you can't find a digital footprint to sometimes find these patients, meaning Let's say five years ago, if you're trying to find a patient with FSHD, like the disease my kids have, you couldn't do it because there was no ICD-10 codes. And there's no unique treatment for that patient population that you could kind of track and find. So I lobbied heavily and um, the FSHD Society, who was working, I believe, with Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy and others, developed ICD-10 codes for muscular dystrophy, including FSHD. So now you can track those patients. So that's one way that you can kind of like have a digital footprint of a person that's out there and that's diagnosed and that you could identify them. But of course, we have to, you know, in this country and other countries, they have different rules about HIPAA and things like that. So you can't just reach the person directly, but there are indirect methods you can do to at least find out how many there are, where clusters come. Um, One group I've worked with that I've always been very thankful to have been able to work with, and I don't work as close anymore, but years ago, I worked very closely with the Muscular Dystrophy Association and helped them develop their neuromuscular data hub, which what they're trying to do is they're trying to take a registry of all the neuromuscular diseases under their umbrella. And it's interesting. Most people think that the Muscular Dystrophy Association is just the nine main types of muscular dystrophies, but that's not true. They actually have 43 different diseases under their umbrella, like Pompeii disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, Those are not muscular dystrophies, but they are neuromuscular diseases. 
So uh, we help them and they actually prioritize FSHD as one of the top seven to start with because uh, we found out that FSHD, while it's not very well known, it might actually be one of the most common because a lot of the prevalence and incidence of some of these diseases is very difficult to get a hold on. So, you know, I dig under every rock to try to find patients. We look to key opinion leaders and physicians who are high prescribers of genetic testing. We find them that way some way times. We find them looking at like for the MDA, at least in the United States, you can go to the MDA care centers where these patients are treated. Some patients come for many, many miles, some more than a hundred miles or more to come to the MDA care centers. I'm blessed to live in an area where we have two MDA care centers uh, right next to me. There's Duke University and then UNC Chapel Hill. So our family has taken advantage of both of those universities and they've just been a blessing. Um, they're, they're fantastic. And even the MDA model is wonderful because rather than have to have your kid go to five or 10 different appointments, you can go on one day and go to all the different therapists and all the different folks. It, it sometimes can be a long day, but um, it's, it's satisfying to be able to have all the results on one day. That sounds like a rare disease parent's dream come true. It is. <laughs> the MDA umbrella. Wow, you're lucky to be in that. Yeah. The ICD code thing, man, that's a lot of bureaucracy to get done. We're working <laughs> on it right now with CT and MB1. And I know my friend at Mike Grelietz and got, got theirs finished. And it is a wild ride. What advice do you have for patient advocacy groups in getting those ICD codes approved? I would say be persistent. I also... I, I have not done this that much because I only have, I'm limited by the hours in a day, but um, I have been, as the years go by, I've been working more and more with on the political side. So there are groups that um, have folks that go up to the Hill and I've actually invited politicians to come to our rare disease days, for example. And we've been blessed to have a couple of politicians come to Sineos Health Rare Disease Days. And those are folks like we had um, GK Butterfield come last year and he's a co-chair of the Rare Disease Caucus. And he's a very big supporter of ICD-10 codes. We need ICD-10 codes for a ton of reasons, but the main reason is just so that we can track the patients, you know, and, and then it's also needed for the reimbursers and the, and the payers and the insurance so they can track them. One thing they did that I was really happy about is they had an ICD-10 code for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Unfortunately, because that disease is related to the dystrophin protein or the dysregulation of it rather, and so is Becker muscular dystrophy, they lumped them together. So it's hard to tease out the Beckers from the Duchenne community. So the numbers always look a little bigger because they reflect both populations, not just one. So I would advocate for an ICD-10 code for each rare disease, whether it have a name like fasciosscapular humeral, or it just has letters. Um, some of the, I've, I've seen some genetic mutations in very small or ultra rare populations, which you alluded to earlier in the podcast. Those are very unique situations because I have worked with a couple of companies um, to talk about ways to work with them. So some of these companies are developing particular products, like I know the antisense oligonucleotides is one, where they actually make a custom cocktail just for that person. And that is an amazing thing. Um, some folks have done this at lower costs, and it's just an amazing thing to try to treat people that, you know, have a disease that may occur in less than, say, 10 people in the world. So, you, you know, it's good to feel unique, but you don't want to feel unique when you have a disease that, you know, not anybody else has and uh, medical people may not fully understand. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it gets a little messy. So I'm going to make sure to add detective into your bio, maybe a, maybe a lobbyist. I don't know how you do this all in your day. I do want to switch gears and ask you just on one more question, kind of as with your dad caregiver hat and the transition experience for you and your wife with your kids becoming adults and moving out and going to college and how your caregiving tasks have changed. Well, they have changed. You're 100% right about that. I mean, the things that people don't put in papers and you don't see in scientific stuff is like, you know, we, we lived in a nice two-story house, uh, the house before we live in now, and we were perfectly happy with it. And we wanted to continue to make payments on it till we paid it off. And we were thrilled to live in the neighborhood. 
we had a lot of friends there and we didn't want to move. But my kids couldn't walk up and down the steps anymore, so we lost about the use of about half that house. So we, now we live in a one-story house. And while that is part of the transition of them getting a little worse from being able to ambulate, um, that is part of the story. And that's part of the cost of the rare diseases that sometimes doesn't get put down in a, in a, in a story or sometimes get recognized. But those are, those are important things. We've had to change our life, not only to support them, but like just for example, with my son up in, I live in North Carolina and my son's actually at Harvard University in uh, Boston and we try to go up every other month. So my wife goes up, usually flies, and then I go up every other one and then one of them I fly and then usually one I drive. And um, it's to not just because maybe to help him clean his room or to do some things that we can do. I mean, it is those things, but it's not really just that. It's also to encourage him to keep the connectivity, to give him a pat on the shoulder or a hug you know, to let him know that we're supporting him and encouraging him. And he's so determined and, and has such, he's just an amazing guy. Uh, he got through his first year now. So he's halfway through his master's degree in engineering and computational science. So, you know, really proud of him. My daughter moved to the shore. So we go out there quite a bit. I live in uh, more towards closer to Raleigh. It's called a small town called Morrisville. And she lives in Wilmington. So it's a little more than two hours to get out there. So it's not too hard, but we do get out to see her and also encourage her and to help her uh, in any way we possibly can as well. So, um, you know, we have kind of our our retirement or, you know, caregiver life. And then we have another life supporting them outside of work that I, I frequently don't discuss with many people at work um, other than just, to, you know, the accomplishments or things that they do, but they don't know about, you know, trying to get a wheelchair fixed remotely or trying to find a duplicate set of caregivers up in Boston so that they can take over some of the responsibilities rather than having them rely on coming back here. Yeah. Oof. Man, that's amazing. Your kids are so beautiful and they're so intelligent and they are just That comes from the mother. Really inspiring. And I can't wait to talk to both of them actually together because they just have such cool stories and in how they're hanging on and how they're pushing forward and how they're contributing with what you're doing and then also finding their own path as advocates. It's really special. Yeah. Just an amazing family, Raymond. I <laughs> I wish I could talk to you about a million things and I know I kind of already have. But I recently just released an episode with four patient advocacy leaders uh, where they each told me a story. And the theme for their story was up at night. And I was just wondering, what keeps you up at night? Well, I think that my, my kind of prior way of looking at things was trying to look one, three, five years. You know, I think um, a lot of guys and a lot of parents are like that, you know. Sometimes we can focus on maybe what they don't have. So I think we're trying to move towards a place where we focus on what we do have and we focus on what we can do and not what we can't do. And um, I think we try to let go some things that were really, really important a couple of years ago and we find out are really not that important at all. We do try to live a little more carpe diem. I would love to tell you I have it perfectly worked out, but that would be a lie. But we do try to live more for the day and not try to take it too big of a bite. When my son was working on his Eagle Scout as an example, he told me, he said, how can I ever possibly do this? And I said, nobody can. I said, that's why less than like two or three or 4% of people ever get that. I said, what you have to do is just chip away at it one piece at a time. And that's how we've tried to do the, the, his education or my daughter now looking for a job. You know, I said, just chip away at it one, one piece at a time. And it's the same thing with the book. You know, no person in their right mind would ever write a book because what happens if you've ever written a book, I'll just tell you, when, when, when you first get the idea, you're all excited about it. And then when you're getting ready to do the manuscript, you're nervous, you're not going to get it in in time. Then when you get it in on time, you think it's done because you've now you submitted it and you've, your job is over, but there's still editing and a myriad of questions that come back from the publishers. And then it gets to the point where all you want to do is get it out the door. And I had to talk to all my editorial friends to help them review it because I, I was given like a one-week turnaround to review 435 pages 
And a lot, a lot of people that um, contributed to it didn't speak English as a first language. So we had to rewrite a little bit just to make sure the English was okay. And um, it was it was a, a labor of what I call of love, right? Because and my wife was like, promised me to never do this again because um, I said I was going to do it just during my work hours. But the problem is it bled over into the evenings and then into weekends. And it became so important in a, in a passion of mine. And, and I'm kind of also a little bit type A. So I, I wanted to kind of make sure I got it done. And it wasn't just getting it done for me, but also for my kids to encourage them and, and hopefully other people. So, you know, it, it, when you look behind the backstory, the book is a wonderful thing and I'm very proud of it. But there is some times in there where I have to admit, I'm just like, please, Lord, just let me get this done, you know? <laughs> totally. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I love the chip it away analogy. And it's clear that that's how your family's been moving all along. Cineos is so lucky to have you and more more so the rare disease community. So I really appreciate you sharing your time with me and talking to us a little bit about everything that you're doing. Tell our listeners where they can find you, if they can contact you and where they can get your books. So if you have any professional things that you're looking at, you'd be more than glad from a personal perspective to contact me on my private email address. So that's Raymond Hummel, all one word at gmail.com. And that's R-A-Y-M-O-N-D-H-U-M-L at gmail.com. And I'd be glad to help in any way I can. Professionally, um, though, if you have something more work-related or related to a clinical trial or something in there, in that regard, you can contact me at Raymond.Hummel at CineosHealth.com. So it's R-A-Y-M-O-N-D dot H-U-M-L at CineosHealth.com. And that's spelled S-Y-N-E-O-S-H-E-A-L-T-H. And be careful, though, if you call me, I'll just give you a warning, because if you're a very passionate parent or you know stuff about rare disease drug development, I may ask you to talk to my rare disease consortium meeting because I meet every month and I'm always looking for speakers. And the people that have had the biggest impact is not necessarily some of the statisticians or pharmacologists of which are very important to drug development, but may not everybody understand. But everybody can understand the emotions and the um, feelings it takes when someone has to come up against something that's big like a rare disease and try to tackle it or, dis- or try to discover a cure. And that is uh, a passionate story. And I think we need to always include the patient voice in everything we do in drug development. And I'm always looking for more perspectives because while I've learned a lot, I know I can learn a ton more from the people who actually are dealing with the rare diseases themselves. Watch out, Raymond. You're going to get a lot of those inquiries <laughs> from, the, from the latter part. And I have like 20 people off the top of my head who I'm totally sending to you. So sorry. <laughs> no, that's what happens when you make a thing. That's okay. That's what I'm here for. All right, cool. Thanks so much for your time, Ray. I really appreciate it. It was so cool to get to know you a little well, thank bit. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here as well. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, Please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.